When I read the book, How We Change by Dr. Ross Ellenhorn, I knew we had to do a podcast. I'd never seen anything quite like it, to be honest. He goes into all of the reasons why it's just so damn hard to change and then how to change how hard it is to change. It was such a great conversation. He's a great guy, and I can't wait to share this podcast, which I must say just might change some things in your life. So hope you guys enjoy it. Would love to hear your feedback. But before we get started, I want to talk to you guys once again about Groove Ring. Now, you're going to see me wearing these silicone wedding rings probably from now to the rest of my life. And I wear them because they're just so incredibly comfortable and convenient. I can slide them in a boxing glove. I can go swimming. I wear them and I don't have to think about them because they're so incredibly comfortable. And they're called Groove Rings because they actually carved grooves on the inside of the bands. So that allows air to come in and allows moisture to go out. So you don't get like a little sweat band on your finger, which isn't that comfortable at all. So these are by far the best rings. It's the best material. They look great. They have their Zeus ring, which is probably my favorite. I have it in gray and then charcoal and then black. And they have a bunch of other great rings as well, some camo rings. It's worn by Olympic athletes, bull riders. Joe Rogan's wearing these things. And there's a million other customers. There's 65,000 five-star reviews. I mean, these things are incredibly legit. So if you were married, this is the ring to get even if you have another fancy like wedding band ring you're going to want to have some of these too so go to groovelife.com and use the code amp at checkout for 15 percent off thank you so much for supporting the podcast once again groovelife.com code amp for 15 percent off dr ross ellenhorn welcome thank you very much it's great to be here yeah, it's great to have you. I really, really enjoyed reading your book. And I'm tempted to turn this into an entire 10-hour audible that just covers every single thing in your book. But I wanted to start with something that my stepmom once told me. She said, don't even bother trying to change somebody else because think about how hard it is to make a change yourself. And I was like, oh, yeah. That makes sense. Like, what chance do I ever have in changing anybody else when it is absolutely so blisteringly hard, takes absolutely everything that I got to make a change in my own life? And I think I have the hubris to think that I'm going to change somebody else. Get out of here. <laughs> and that was really, really good advice. And, and this book really highlights how difficult it is and the resistance we face in making a change ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of it's based on really what we learn as psychotherapists, right? Which is that we're really not there to force the person to change, but to create the right kind of mental space for them to make decisions about change. You know, it's that classic light bulb joke, right? We're not, you know, it has to want to change. And mm -hmm. it's trying to kind of bring back that ethos in a world where there's just so many publications telling people kind of how to change. And in, in my mind, that kind of thinking can become kind of shameful because a person tries it, they follow the instructions, and then they're let down over and over again. And it also doesn't approach changes as how I understand change happens, which it happens from a place of contemplation, from a place where you're kind of weighing the pros and cons of why you're changing, not saying I have to change or I should change. That's a, that's a really interesting concept that makes a ton of sense, of course, and I want to dive into that first. But yeah, as you said, I mean, we get all of this projected on us saying, oh, <clears throat> do or do not, there is no try. I mean, Yoda said that, right? And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, like we don't try to change. We just change. We just do it. It's binary. It's yes or no. And while that's aspirational, and in some ways, perhaps that aspiration is helpful, 
it also can have some of those negative consequences. So when you're approaching this the right way, you know, you say it always starts with contemplation. So explain what that type of contemplation is and how to productively contemplate before you embark on any change. Yeah, so this kind of contemplation I'm talking about is really kind of the classic idea of weighing pros and cons, you know, on one hand, on the other. And we know this really well from the addiction world that um, the old models that used to say sort of, you know, you got to knock this person over the head with the fact that they have an addiction, that their brain is hijacked, and if they've been knocked over the head enough, that you'll force them to see that they have a problem actually doesn't work. You know, AA's got this like 8% chance, 8% um, success rate. Um, mm. Most substance abuse programs have miserable success rates. And then there's this way of looking at things that comes from this idea called motivational interviewing, which is really saying, well, aren't there like good sides, sides that a person wants from their use? And shouldn't we talk about what they might want from their use before we talk about just getting rid of it? Right. And w- what it would happen if we took a non-judgmental approach to that? That yes, it makes sense that you want to be with your friends at the bar. Yes, it makes sense that that'll be a big change in your life. You leave that. Yes, it makes sense that you're trying to kind of medicate your trauma and that this is the best way you found. And that me and giving it up gives that up. That From that place, a person might make a decision that they want to change, but they're not going to make the decision if it's all just about the change is the logical right thing to do and there's no other choice but to change. That's uh, it's something that Gabor Mate says. I know he's got a quote on the on the cover of your book. He says, "All addiction is an attempt to solve a problem." So, in this contemplation, you got to figure out what is the problem that you're trying to solve with the behavior that you're engaging in, whether that's overeating or whether that's addiction or whether that's procrastination. Like, what are you trying to solve? And I think that's an incredibly productive way to look at it, rather than you know the shame that comes from well, I should be, I should be, I should be just right. shooting on yourself constantly. And then that's, that's going to lead to this downward spiral of your own, you know, confidence in yourself, your own faith in yourself, as you talk about. That's right. And, 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 and it also means that if you don't do the thing that supposedly is the good thing, you can take a less judgmental view of yourself at that point. Okay, so I, did, I didn't do the diet tonight. Well, that's because there's all these things, these things that are attractive about not doing it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I can have some affection for myself about that. That's going to make it so the diet's more possible than if you say, I blew it on the diet tonight, yep. right? No, I, I made the decision in the other direction tonight because it, I just did. That's, you know, I'm not, I'm fallible and I did it for these kind of, and by the way, I did it for these sort of self, self-loving reasons. It tastes really good to put a lot of fat in your <laughs> mouth, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. especially when there's a lot of fat and there's some sugar in that fat. That's mm. really great, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so. It's also trying to not be judgmental at those points when you supposedly fail at this, right? Um, and that enters a world where you can actually make better decisions. You say when you're talking about contemplation, self-acceptance is a prerequisite for change, largely because it is the prerequisite for contemplation. And that's a little bit what you're talking about. But explain how self-acceptance is the prerequisite for both change and contemplation. Yeah, there's a there's a... This is not my thinking. This is just the basics of what people talk about when they talk about the dynamic of change, which is that to change, you have to be accepting of yourself. And to change, you have to see that there's some part of you that you don't accept. 
And that dynamic is this paradox. You're always in at the point of change. It's a both and. It's not an either or situation. And you have to be able to hold that, that both and experience that I'm fully accepting of myself, but there's also a part of me I don't want anymore. Mm. And so all change requires that conversation, that kind of dialogue between accepting and not accepting in a yeah. place where you're kind of accepting of yourself, if that makes sense. When, you know, and I've, I've seen this in myself and other people, when there's a lot, a strong sense of self-judgment and a strong sense of shame, and it'll actually mask the truth about what's actually happening. You know, you'll be in denial of actually what you're what you're expressing what you're doing if you're drinking a bunch and you're actually an alcoholic you'll be in denial of your alcoholism you know because you're ashamed of that mm -hmm. thing so part of the self-acceptance just allows you to have the awareness to look at actually what you're doing like oh i'm doing this and it's okay because if it's not okay you'll trick yourself <laughs> you'll trick yourself all day and pretend that you know pretend that you're not doing that thing to avoid the judgment that's going to come from yourself and the shame that's going to come from yourself, which is a, a horrible feeling to have. So you'll come up with all these rationalizations and justifications. So without that self-acceptance, you're not even going to be able to look at what you're actually doing, it seems. Right, exactly. So, so that means that change requires that we get to that place of self-acceptance. It does not require that we tell people how to change. <laughs> Right? right. That's much more important to, you know, we're not surgeons, we're farmers, you know, we're trying to create the right soil. We're not trying to intervene. You know, I mean, my field has this horrible term intervention. It's just it's a horrible term intervention. The term intervention means to come in on something passive and remove something from it. Right. And that's exactly not what works with human beings. It works with human beings when there's a cancer, but it doesn't work on human behavior. It doesn't work on a person's soul, you know, that requires that you're trying to create a fertile ground for them to make the right choice. Right. And, and, I mean, and the right choice they make is towards growth when they're in a position where they can make that choice is towards growth, you know? Yeah. yeah. And just to, just to highlight how difficult this is to change for people who are kind of unaware. I mean, most people probably know, but you list some facts. You say we spend 30 billion getting in shape. 73% of us don't reach fitness goals. Weight loss is 66 billion, 69% quit diets. Eight out of 10 people who actually go on their diets gain their weight back, and 93% of people making New Year's resolutions break them. I mean, so what? basically what we're saying here is either A, it's really hard, which is true probably, it's both and, it's really hard, and we're going about this whole process of change in probably flawed ways, because those statistics are pretty poor. Yeah, and that, and that I think, I, you know, I talk about know your enemy, I mean, why are we writing all these books about how to change instead of saying, well, but this other thing's more powerful. Sameness is more powerful. It's more sophisticated. You know, it's got a hold of us. So why are we looking at sameness instead of change? Because if we can figure out sameness and kind of understand it, we might be in a better place to change. And so the yeah. book is really about all the forces that make us the same, you know, and, and, and it, the original title was, it, it was sort of a, it was sort of making fun of self-help books. It was the 10 reasons not to change. <laughs> and that just wouldn't sell. You know? <laughs> He's going to buy that. But that's the idea. Like, this is like, there are real reasons, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a, such a good way to frame it. Resistance to change is a desire for sameness. And you're asking the question, why do we want sameness? Right. You know? And that's like a really, that's a really interesting way to look at it because everybody focuses on the resistance. I have resistance to change. Okay. Yes. But what is that? That's, oh, that's you desiring to stay exactly the same. And right, why? Exactly. Exactly. 
Exactly. So it's not really resistance that you're moving towards sameness. Right. Right. <laughs> which makes which makes a lot more sense, actually. Yeah. 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 So talk about, you know, to get into this, we got to talk about hope and then our fear of hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um I've been doing this research on fear of hope. And um it it comes out of um, my own experiences, and, and I could tell you a little bit about that. And then my experiences working with people who have had um, significant experiences being treated for psychiatric issues. Is that okay if I go through? Let's, but yes, absolutely. But first, you know, let's just define hope for people before we get into the fear of hope. So, how, how would you define hope? Um, hope is not quite an emotion, it's an emotion and it's a posture. Okay, so like paranoia is not just an emotion. It's an emotion and a posture. It's a position towards the world, right? So it's a posture that is sort of a loving orientation towards something you want to achieve that you don't know if you can get. So hope is a feeling you have in the midst of uncertainty. There is no hope when things are certain. It just doesn't happen. You don't feel Mm -hmm. hopeful. Hopeful Hope arises when you don't know if you can get the thing. Optimism is a, is this cheap emotion that is like, well, I'll just get it. I'm going to have that thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Hope is this yearning for a thing you don't know if you'll get. So hope and uncertainty go together. It's the feeling you have in points of uncertainty. Yeah. And it drives you. It's a driving emotion. It drives you to that thing. Hope, um, whenever you hope, you appoint something as more important than before you hoped for it. So, um, it's Christmas and your parents ask you what you want. You don't know what you want. And then you say bike. And the minute you say bike, all of a sudden bike becomes the one thing you have to have in life. That's because <laughs> you're hoping at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you recognize you don't have a bike. So hope always points out what you don't have in your life too. And that's why it's a risk. Because if you don't get the thing that you hope for, you're in a state of recognizing you didn't get something you made important and you lack in your life. And so it's a scary emotion because it drives us to these feelings of disappointment. I didn't get that thing that would make my life better. That's a horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. And so we develop these fears of hope. Does that make sense, Way? It makes absolute sense. Yeah. 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 So then that's that fear of hope, which is is something that that even that turn of phrase and is something that for a lot of people like fearing hope. Like, what do you even what do you even mean? Hope is supposed to be a good thing. But really, like unpacking how scary it is to one, get out of the denial that there could be something about your life that would be better than your life currently is. Yeah. And then placing that hope and expectation are also kind of very, very closely linked. That hope very. becomes an expectation, which then sets you up for massive disappointments. And you talk a lot about that in the mm-hmm. book as well. But it puts you in intention. The minute you start hoping, it puts you in this kind of existential tension. That's right. That's right. And um, you know, you're right that people are sort of surprised when I talk about fear of hope, but you, you can't read any theologians that say, hey, go ahead and hope. It's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> they say, this is going to take a lot of prayer and a lot of courage for you to hope. This takes work. Yeah. You know, Martin Luther King spent his entire career trying to cajole people into hoping because it's not an easy thing, you know, um, and great leaders are always about how do I get people to hope? Because it's not an easy, simple thing. You can't just make it happen in your head. The, the tension, you know, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, the tension you're talking about is that when you hope, 
especially for it's, when it's something about yourself, you're putting this other religious term in front of you, which is, do you have enough faith in yourself to get to that thing you want? And you have enough faith in yourself that if you don't get that thing, you can handle it. And so that is a tension at that point when you go to something you want in your own life is, do I believe in myself enough? And can I generate enough hope to get there? So it puts you in an existential bind. I am in charge here. I'm driving the bus. That's an existential moment. I'm driving this bus. And at the end, I may discover I'm not very good at this. Ah, now we're getting, now we're getting into the meat of some really interesting things because that, that tension that comes from hoping for something, right? The, the sovereignty and the responsibility that you're taking on when you, when you realize that there's hope and you have this kind of idea that you could participate in that thing, in that change that you want to bring about, that puts that responsibility on yourself, which then opens you up to this whole cavalcade of, of judgment again, if right. you, if you fail. Right. And that's where the faith in yourself, you know, is really, really pretty crucial at that point. And you, you talk about, you talk a lot about that. I thought the most powerful thing that you, that you talked about was if you have hope, if you have like hope for something, but without faith in yourself and there's an obstacle in your way, you know, something is blocking you, but you don't have faith, you'll immediately discard it. You'll be like, ah, right. You know, like, uh, this isn't, this isn't the way, but if you have a little bit more faith, like a little bit more faith, you'll find all of the other ways that you can go around through underneath, you know, obliterate that obstacle and make it to your goal. So yeah. it's like, this is that also this other thing that we can really recognize is that, you know, hope and faith, it's important. It's important to just understand how these two things interplay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, the stuff we're really interested in our research is not people that are hopeless and have fear of hope it's about people that score high in hope and have fear of hope all kinds of crazy shit happens for those people because they're actually people that want stuff in life they haven't given up but they're terrified in the same way you you, you described about their faith in themselves because they've been so hurt by disappointment so they're not hopeless people it's just that they're so worried about if they follow hope hope becomes this dangerous thing to them like it'll follow me into disappointment again and it's when those combinations happen that all kinds of stuff happens. Anxiety goes up. People get into these counterfactuals. I should have done that. I should have done this. So I should have, they do these should haves all the time. And that happens in people, especially who have those two things going on at the same time, high hope and high fear of hope. So what's going on for them? Well, in our mind, it's the faith issue, right? That they don't think they can make it through that. So they're scared of it. Mm. Um, a, a person with high hope and high fear of hope will not recognize a good event coming up as quickly as a person who's hopeless. Person who's hopeless is like, yeah, big deal. Good event coming up. Person that's <laughs> high hope is like, oh no, I'm going to get excited and then I'll be let down. Right? Right. So the hopeless person is almost dampening the entire realm of possibilities. Right. They're just saying that nothing that happens even matters. So I'm not even going to hope because my life sucks so bad that nothing that happens matters anyways. So if this happens, yeah, sure. You know, that's going to be the moderately better or some modicum of improvement, but it doesn't matter. And so it kind of dampens this whole world. It's almost a, an escapism from the tension of hope is to be hopeless. It's just to say, look, nothing matters. You know, it's like, it doesn't even, it doesn't even, I don't even care. And then that just like removes them from the game and, the, and that anxiety of actually having to hope for something, recognizing that something could be better than it already is. 
That's right. That's exactly right. 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 So I show these videos of these people on a high dive board, either jumping or being chickening out. Um, it, it, they're great videos because they just show, they show this metaphor for what it's like to be that high up and be afraid of heights. Cause that's what high hope and high fear of hope look like. I don't show the people that never go up on the board. Right. right. <laughs> and those are the hopeless ones. These are people that went up the board. They actually wanted to do it. Now they're scared up there, you know? Right. So it's like, you know, hope and courage are combined. They're connected. So I want to take a minute to talk to you guys about my favorite testing service, Let's Get Checked. I've talked to you about the male hormone testing panels, but they also have full STD testing panels. Now, let me give you some stats. A million people get sexually transmitted infections every day worldwide, and over half of those people don't get tested because they don't want to go to the place. They don't want to go to the clinic. They don't want to talk about it. Let's Get Checked really solves those problems. You get the test. It gets delivered to you. You collect your sample. You send it back in with a shipping label that's provided. You review the results. And then once the results are available, you can get a consultation with a physician over the phone. And then if you need a prescription, you get a prescription. It's pretty much the way that I think the industry and everything is moving is just to allow the convenience for you to handle these things when you want to handle them on your own time. And the consultations with your doctor are pretty simple. You don't need to necessarily look them in the eye unless that's just something that you really want to do. Uh, so once again, go to trylgc.com slash amp, A-M-P, and you can get your STD testing kit. So trylgc.com slash A-M-P and 20% off for any of you who are interested. What's the, what's the thing that you recommend people work to cultivate? If you want to cultivate more courage, if you want to cultivate more faith, you know, what is the, what is the practice? How do we get into having, cultivating that greater sense of faith in ourselves, you know, that greater sense of courage in the face of, in these things. And those might be two different questions. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a little disappointing to you during this talk because I don't give advice. I just don't quite <laughs> believe in it. <laughs> just like I said, from the start, you're just creating the soil. You're just creating. You're just adding fertilizer to the soil right now. Don't worry. <laughs> I actually, I actually think that there's this social psychological term called um, self-efficacy, which is different than self-esteem. Self-esteem is this feeling like you're, you know, I'm a good person. I can, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a likable good person. Self-efficacy is I can make things happen. And I think the best way to become a hopeful person is to find ways to work on your self-efficacy which means all kinds of things. Learn to play guitar, uh, learn to do uh, some sort of craft, get better at some sport, anything that develops the sense that if I work at this and then I can achieve something and I have some pride builds on your faith because I really can't help you with your hope. I can help you with your faith, mm. right? Yep. And so if you have more faith in yourself, more, oh yeah, I can make things work in life. I'm capable of making my life work. That thing will draw you through this because the thing you're afraid of is, if I don't reach that hope, is this going to destroy me? And you have to feel like a person, no, no, it's not going to destroy me. It's going to be upsetting, but I'll be, I'll be here on the other end because I'm, I'm good at things, you know? Um, and then there's these, all these qualities that I've, I've heard you talk about before, which is these sort of, these qualities that go with social estrangement. It's very hard to hope and not have a lot of social support, a lot of purpose, 
to feel a lot of loneliness, to feel isolated. It's very hard to have faith in those moments because these are what they call um, uh, social resources. These are resources in social psychology and they really hold you up during the most difficult times, you know? So really kind of what you're talking about is competence creates confidence in a certain way, right? Like this idea that when you know that you can accomplish something, anything, you know, then it builds this sense of competence, like your own self-efficacy to use the the proper terminology, I suppose. So you start to learn like, oh, well, I learned this thing. I succeeded at this thing. And I think that's also one of the, you know, and I think you covered this in the book as well. And I had a great podcast with a guy, a coach named Jersey Gregorick, who talked about micro progressions, you know, like really instead of, instead of this big, big extrinsic goal, like I'm going to, I got to lose 50 pounds, you know? And if you come up short from that, you're a failure and all the shame comes in and you have all of that fear of not reaching that. Be like, I'm going to go through today and I'm going to eat a little better and I'm going to move a little more and that's going to be my win for the day. And that's like, a, that's, that is my own championship for today. And that's it. And you get through that one day and you're like, good job, man. Good job. Not showing up on the scale yet, but that's all right. Let's add another day and let's add another day. And that, then that becomes this intrinsic process where you're just involved in the moment it's almost like you collapse that extrinsic goals just short enough and it almost kind of becomes intrinsic in a way because you're just involved in the process of it when the goals get micro enough that they're not some big thing looming in the future that's really great how you tied the intrinsic with the extrinsic goals and that's exactly right yeah that's exactly right that's what this guy kurt lewin the guy that kind of invented social psychology talked about is that motivation happens in these units you can have a long-term goal, but you have to have these little tiny units, you know, of success, you know, of some sort of accomplishment to make it through. Um, um, sad to say it's the psychiatrist. And what about Bob that talks about baby steps? <laughs> but, 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 um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's that process, you know, one of the things that I took such delight in, um, was was how um, Mario Cuomo walked New York State through incremental steps, and he didn't walk it. He didn't walk New York State through incremental steps where everything was a success. But he still took those steps with them, and then he would tell them, "This didn't work. Now we're going to try this. This didn't work. Now we're going to try this." And he held that entire state together by doing that, right? And when you look about, you look around about the chaos we now have in messages about COVID. There's none of those incremental steps to keep our hope going and keep our motivation going. And what starts happening? People start partying. They take off their masks. All the motivation to kind of hold us together starts to collapse because we don't have that sense of you described, that you described, these incremental small achievements that we're all right. on board with, you know? Right. Yeah, everybody's focused on this big fear fear paradigm that seems hopeless anyway. So in, right. the, face of, in the face of abject hopelessness, fuck it. Why do, why do anything, you know, and exactly. that's, that's it. Let's, let's keep, let's keep digging into the, into the vein of intrinsic versus extrinsic. And there's a, I don't know what he is, social scientist, Eric Fromm, and he mm-hmm. talks about having versus being and how we've been intoxicated with this idea of having things as a way to achieve happiness rather than being something as the true way to achieve happiness. And all of the research shows that having stuff doesn't make you fucking happy just doesn't you know all of these extrinsic goals we think that if we just get to this place everything's going to be good it's just not real it's a fantasy yeah yeah he's he's my he's one of my favorites and and the book is trying to bring back 
a kind of thinking from back then. You know, when I was in college, you walk into a bookstore and there are books by him in there. And this is a guy who was a psychoanalytic anal, analyst and Marxist. And now you go to bookstores and it's how to change your, how to get rid of your anxiety, right? His was about, let's think about what anxiety is in the modern world, you know? And th- my books attempt to bring back some of that thought, you know? Mm-hmm. When Fromm wrote that, um, there, were no, there were no storage units in the entire United States. Now there's more, stor- there's more storage units than McDonald's. So he's writing about having, <laughs> he had no idea that having would be these things where we have so much that we don't, we can't even keep it in our house. Right. But yeah. that, but that philosophy of having, of having and not being leads to us too. We begin to think of ourselves as things to have as units, as machines. Mm-hmm. And so all you have to do is pick up that instruction manual on how to change and we can fix ourselves. And we're trying to fix ourselves so that we can fit in, not to be original. And so it becomes this act of conformity. Can I be just like the other mower in the long line of mowers at Home Depot? Right. And, and that's what he was worried about is this, what's he, what he called alienation, this world where we're just always just trying to kind of look like one another and become like one another and just become quote unquote functional, which, you know, I've been in this field for almost 30 years. I still don't know what functional means. <laughs> it's a, it's on a gradient. That's for damn yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it's also it, when you talk about this kind of mechanization of how we look at ourselves and looking at ourselves as a machine. Well, one of the qualities of a machine is you can run diagnostics on it. And I think for many, many years, that was difficult to do. Obviously, there's metrics of how much money you have, but nobody was like running around with their bank account, you know, on their fucking T-shirt or something like that. Right. So it was all kind of like hidden. And there was ways that you would suggest things. And of course, people recognize those that had money and power, et cetera. But now with social media, there is an actual metric. And I think a lot of us get stuck in that trap where, oh, how many followers do you have? Okay, well, that's your that's your worth to the tribe, in quotes, to the tribe. Your worth to the tribe is how many people are listening to what you have to say, how many people are liking your photos. If you're putting out photos of you being attractive, however many people follow you and like you is a validation of how attractive you are. If you're putting out anything, you have this, this metric to go by, which then further leads to this kind of commoditization of the essence of who we are, judging it based on an external met- metric. So our whole existence becomes extrinsic to a certain degree exactly yeah 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 like um like um yeah like i turned to my wife yesterday and I, i'm i'm gonna be on uh, the aubrey marcus show and should i how many bangles should i get for my wrist <laughs> <laughs> power amulets power amulets are needed all the guys on it they have all these bangles like, <laughs> dude you're 58 years old you're not gonna put bangles on your wrist <laughs> I'm glad you didn't go for the bangles. Although maybe it would have been, maybe it would have been good. Maybe it would have been one of those stories that your wife could tell about yeah. how cute, about how cute you are, you know, that really endear each other. She doesn't always call it cute, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but um, yeah, that, that, that sort of that, that, that force, that, uh, that, that, that power of conformity um, um, is something that they were like worried about back then. I mean, it's weird to think about that actually all the literature was this encroaching conformity. This is the 1950s and 60s. Now we, we now we're just sort of, it's there, you know, it's just part of our lives, but they were terrified of this thing. Partly they're terrified of this because of the kind of conformity that happened 
10 years before that, you know, Auschwitz closed in 1945, 1955, Eric Fromm wrote this book. I mean, they were really worried about what it means when people don't think for themselves, right. you know, right. They kind of pulled into these things, you know? Yep. All right. Shifting gears real quick. You, you taught me one of my new favorite words and that is dramaturgy. <laughs> dramaturgy this this idea and i'll I'll let you explain it so i don't give the cliff notes of it but i thought that was just a brilliant way to think about how we go about our lives in so many different cases when we're worried about what other people think not only what other people think but what we think about ourselves so explain the concept of dramaturgy well this uh, a lot of dramaturgy comes from this guy named irving goffman who was just this great sociologist he was just remarkable and it was all about how to present yourself in everyday life and what you're supposed to do to, 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 to engage in something that makes everything seem normal. Right. So what, one of the great experiments we did in sociology school when I was an undergrad was they had us get on an elevator and go to the back of the elevator and face the back of the elevator. And just that little tiny act freaked everybody out on the elevator. Right. Like, mm-hmm. what the fuck is this guy doing? And it was just simply turning my back and facing the back of the elevator. So the dramaturgy is this is what it's like to be in an elevator. We all face towards the door. That's the story we all live in. And by turning your back, you're changing the dramaturgy. And so these dramaturgies kind of control our lives on some level. You know, I've heard, I've heard you talk about these stories control our lives. Well, dramaturgy is yep. like a story. It's a story we all play into. There's more actors than one in a dramaturgy. Right. Yeah, it's where you're putting on a performance for an audience and based on the expectations that that audience has, based on what you think they might like. But the the interesting part is that you're part of that audience, you know, mm-hmm. like your own self. So yep. even when nobody's around, we're still participating in our own little dramaturgy, you know, a way that we're going about, a way that we're thinking about things, rationalizing things, coming up with excuses that we're only going to tell ourselves, justifications we're only going to tell ourselves. We're not even being real with ourselves because we're participating as the audience in this dramaturgy, once again, afraid of this, you know, overbearing self-judge that we have that might, that might, you know, criticize us or might make us shameful or might punish us in some way by the denial of our own self-love or whatever, whatever means that our judge has to withdraw something positive so we're participating in this thing like no 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 judge like you see i could have worked but you know this thing happened or i'm not feeling so well or right blah, blah, blah. and so we're participating in this game even when there's nobody else around yep 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 i mean that's right that's exactly right it, it's a it's a fascinating thing in a way that we're just constantly living in these dramaturgies uh, you know um to 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 return to the um bangles uh metaphor um (laughs) that was me making a comment on the dramaturgy of what it's like to be interviewed by you that i'm i'm sort of refusing to wear the costume of this (laughs) but anybody that knows me knows that's my dramaturgy yeah 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 even that even that self the guy that does that thing yeah Yeah. i'm the guy that does that thing you know So there's even a story behind that, you know, there's a drama to that, you know, what's the way to, what's the way to step off stage? You know, how do we, how do we step off stage? I mean, awareness is a key thing. I mean, I think even just reading this and understanding the concept of dramaturgy gives you the awareness when you're playing a role for yourself and for an audience, but beyond awareness, is there another way that you would recommend somebody can just, all right, all right, enough, enough's enough. I'm stepping off the stage here. 
Well, I, I do have an, I do have a slight answer to that, but I, I think it has to do more with just my answer will have more to do with m- more issues of awareness. Cause um, Aubrey, I'm just interested in awareness. I'm not so interested in telling people how to do things. Cause I think right. that awareness drives us that I have enough faith in people that if I can get through to them, these awarenesses might help them. If that mm. makes sense more no than if I say, here's how you do this thing. You know, um, I, I think that, I think that play for me in my own life, play is the fundamental objective. And what I mean by that is the experience that I am engaged with somebody else or the world in a way where I have input, but it has input too, and we're creating something new. And dramaturgical situations don't, often don't have that. What you have in those is this sort of no play. It's, it's just drama. And I think that our orientation should always be, how do I get to that place of play? Um, and the place of play, I feel like, uh, well, it's right. Hap- you and me, I feel like it's happening right you- now with you and me. I'm trying to understand what you're, you're asking. You're trying to understand what I'm saying. We're trying to get to a common meaning. Um, it's some common understanding. That's the place we all want to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that requires a certain level of risk to improvise, to just begin wherever you are and not go the route of one story or one idea. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's, yeah, Totally. You know, when you when you mentioned play, it, it occurred to me one of the things that I offer for my masterminds like the Fit for Service Fellowship and and different, you know, coaching things that I provide is ecstatic dance. And the purpose of ecstatic dance is to push you into movement patterns where you're absolutely not thinking about it, not judging yourself, and just radically responding, you know, creating that collapsing the sound to the way that your body moves without any watcher, without any judge, without anything else. So you're just actually free you know free from those watchful eyes you're free from any drama it doesn't nobody's watching you you're not watching yourself and so you're actually able to just escape from that and it's just this kind of structured form of play where you enter this space where there's this radical no judgment agreement and the lights are lights are usually low i mean there's different containers you can set but for a lot of people this is hard even by themselves like for listeners right now i would challenge you to go into a room you can shut all the lights off definitely don't want to be looking in the mirror it's going to make it harder unless you want to go the advanced level then look right in the mirror and do it but nonetheless like go in there and just start moving around if you're a guy like start moving your hands wobbling your hands and wiggling your hips and doing all of these things that are really uncomfortable because you're participating in the dramaturgy of i'm a masculine man and a masculine man doesn't move his hands when he dances and a masculine right. man doesn't move his hips but that's just a dramaturgy you right know, that's just a constraint that you're putting on yourself playing a role to reinforce to yourself i'm a masculine man i'll show myself well who what you don't have to prove that you know right, just, right. You allow yourself to be who you are yeah yeah that's great that's really great yeah that's really great and that's what that's what play is, you know, that when you really just lose yourself, you know, when you really get down on it, and that's why kids are so great, you know, my nieces and nephews, it's just when you really get into it, you're just collapsing this idea of how you should act and what you should be, and you're just flowing. If something can make them laugh, you do it. If they can make you laugh, you do it. You just and the sillier you get, usually the the greater the reward. The play gets more fun, everything gets more fun. And you're not thinking about you're not thinking about how that reflects on you or or whatever else it is. And if, if you are, it's not play. 
you know, it's not really going to work. If you're trying to impress that kid's parent or, or whatever you're trying to do, you know, then you're back in the dramaturgy construct, you know, rather than in the actual play construct, which is, you know, if we can live our life as, as play, man, we made it. I know. I mean, I think, I think though, you know, there's ways of thinking about play as, no, I agree. I mean, first of all, what does it take to play? It takes um, some ability, some faith that you have the ability to contribute something to this event and some belief that when you see a barrier in this event, you can get around it. Those are the two outcomes of hope. So you can't play without hope. You have to have some level of hope in it. And for me, hope is the kernel of everything regarding our interactions. And when a child is trying to get a parent to interact with them, it's play. The child is doing all these little tiny things to get the parent to interact. I think what they're doing is being hopeful. And when the parent doesn't interact, they're being destroyed by the disappointment of the parent not interacting. So it's all attachment, what? <laughs> That's a lot yeah. of pressure for a parent. <laughs> you're, well, you're going to fail. I'm going to tell you right now. Um, I mean, we all are. But, yeah. but the fact is, is that, is that at that very moment is the moment where hope is generated. I don't believe that people have attachment disorders. I think they have hope, perturbed relationships with hope. I hoped my parent didn't come. I hoped they didn't give me the right response. And all of that comes out of an act of play. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point across the room, see if they'll follow my finger pointing. I'm going to give a giggle. I'm going to do all these things that are trying to get them to interact with me in this playful manner. And if I'm let down a bunch of times, I begin to kind of give up on play, you know? And play, um, that thing, that thing where you're innovatively thinking and acting with others to create something new is basically just fundamentally the most human thing there is because we're built to innovate things together. That's what we do that other animals don't. We innovate things as a group. And so play is the thing that gets us to our most humane place, mm-hmm. which is how do I get along with others to create something new together? And it's shocking the effects that can happen when you actually release into play mm-hmm. and, and then someone, someone slaps you for it. Yeah, right. and I have you give a you give a great example of this, and it, I forget the the pseudonym that you use for one of your patients, but he was dancing around, playing, had a really stern, authoritarian father, bumps a record player, mm-hmm. and gets you know sternly reprimanded, right? His, and that was a that was a trauma that he carried for his life, you know, that you ended up having to work with. I know examples of this myself. You know, my former partner was singing, loved singing. Singing was her way to like let her soul kind of come through her little, you know, innocent child, you know, expression. And then one day some some comment from a parent was, from her mom was, I don't like your voice. It sounds terrible, blah, blah, blah. And there it was. Yeah. Closed it up. And she's yeah, still, work, still working to this day to, to feel comfortable to really release it. And ostensibly she's an amazing singer, you know, but that one, that one traumatic moment, it just makes an imprint that's really hard. So in your practice, when you have somebody that's had an imprint like this, you know, take us through like some of the steps. How do you water the garden to allow them to kind of release this, uh, this trauma? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I kind of want to name it. I want to get it out of the world of clinical language and talk about these experiences we all have with hope. So I want to name it and I want to bring it down out of the professional realm. 
you know, that what you're experiencing could be something I've experienced because this is how it's been for me. And how can we begin to have a conversation where we look at the pain of these kinds of disappointments and take them seriously as real injuries? You know, we could call them traumas, but if we call them traumas too much, we won't recognize them, the meaning of them. And the meaning of them is this place where you felt like you could be spontaneous and joyous and it was taken from you. And that's profound. And so then it's really a conversation about how deeply painful it is to have those kinds of experiences. Um, and I found that those kind of conversations are better than saying we're treating your trauma. Right. You know, it just brings it down to a more human level and a level where we can understand each other and they can feel my compassion for them. I'm not feeling compassion for, um, for what's wrong with them. I'm having compassion for what happened to them because we have a shared understanding of what happened. And that's a much more important kind of conversation. Every single day, it seems like more and more research comes out indicating the importance of metabolic health. And what does that mean? It means paying attention to your macronutrients in particular. Now, of course, the micronutrients that we find in food, that's super important as well. But the macronutrients are vitally important to make sure that our mitochondria is functioning, make sure that we're carrying the right amount of weight. There's so many different aspects, including immune health, that are related to our metabolic health. So when Onnit created a bunch of snacks, we wanted to make sure that we created snacks that we could eat that actually fit into the category of healthy metabolic macronutrient food. So we have our protein power puffs, supreme pizza flavor. They're absolutely delicious, a great crunchy snack that's nice and savory and super high in protein, low in carbs. Our protein bites, which have actually a bunch of micronutrients as well because there's over 50 different plant ingredients in there. And the peanut butter ones, y'all, are fucking ridiculous. Like I'm eating probably one or two of those every single day and they're five grams of sugar. So again, fall in line with healthy metabolic macronutrients. The Onnit protein bars, particularly the blueberry walnut, Blueberry walnut is also ridiculous. So if you're going to try the protein bites, get the peanut butter. And if you're going to try the protein bars, get the blueberry walnut. We're actually innovating a bunch of new flavors that I'm excited about as well. Fat butters. We have our regular fat butters, the peanut butter and the almond butter. But the ones that are really crazy are the snickerdoodle and the chocolate hazelnut. So definitely try those out. And once again, those are sweetened with low glycemic sweeteners. So they're high in fat. They got a healthy amount of protein. And they're also not going to be super high in carbs. And of course, our Warrior Bars, a classic mainstay, including a bunch of free-range buffalo that we get from the Lakota Reservation and our partners at Tonka. So check out all the healthy snacks. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey. And as always, you can save 10% off. And I deeply appreciate everyone who shops at onnit.com slash Aubrey. It supports the podcast. Much love, everybody. You talk, you talk a bit about how <clears throat> there's a couple things that people do. One is, in some way, as a response to this injury that they received, they want to create a monument to that. And and that's the psychology behind not actually overcoming that injury because of the injustice that you felt, because of the pain you felt. There's this thing that goes on in our mind where we think that if we continue to punish ourselves, then somehow that'll be retribution to the perpetrator of such actions, right? right. And so you can get stuck in this thing where you're trying to actually even the scales of justice from this from this thing that you felt by actually not 
moving past it by not by not changing yeah yeah it's a very tragic thing to me because memorials are really important and when we tear down a memorial other than when it's a southern confederate soldier when we tear down a memorial we're we're doing something kind of blasphemous you know we're doing you're ruining something sacred and it's sacred because it's holding some sort of important memory so when we become a memorial to our past in other words if i change people aren't going to recognize how hurt i was because if i'm doing well then the then the injury couldn't have been that bad Right? The only way I can make sure people understand that I was injured is to stay in a bad place, to stay destroyed. To me, that makes a lot of sense that a person would want to do that because, because they are giving up something. They are giving up a sort of injustice if they move forward, right? And so it's a very understandable thing to want that memorial, but it also keeps you in a place where you're, you're in a place of suffering and, and, not, and not moving forward in life. Well, it's, it's a great paradox because it's understandable, but absolutely illogical as well and, and counterproductive. So it's, it's, it's both of those things. Like, yeah. But it's, uh, I think, again, awareness. You know, when, you're, when you're in this, you have to recognize if you're keeping any memorials to your pain. You know, right. If you're keeping any way that you, you want to hold on to something you know, to show people what you've experienced. And you talk about how it's important for people to talk about and to share these experiences right. multiple times so that it's kind of remembered it's in the collective consciousness of the people right. around them and then that's helpful to allow them to let it go because then it's almost like they take their memorial from having to be internal and then they can just kind of allow the memories that are held by multiple different people to kind of keep that memory alive yeah and then that helps them helps them move on but just the awareness that you know you may be holding on to something as a means to actually memorialize something that happened but that's really not helping anything it's not helping i mean it's understandable you're doing it for an adaptive reason mm -hmm. like, got it but now can we make a different choice you know can we make a more productive choice for our happiness and for our growth and for our life yeah yeah i i think that that's exactly right i think i would phrase it differently to a little differently to a person which is not um it's maladaptive or anything but what a beautiful thing you've done for yourself. You've created this memorial. It just is really understandable. D do you want to keep it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Maybe you do still. Maybe you do still want to keep it. And, and that's completely understandable because you built this beautiful kind of language in your behavior that says what happened to you. Um, but you know what else? Uh, we've been together for a long time and I can hold on to this memorial. You can move on and, and I will know what happened to you, you know? And I think that's what you're saying. You get it into other people's heads, you know? Right. I'll, it's never going away. Even when you've quit therapy with me, I'll always hold it in my head. I'm, you know, I'm the ark kind of controlling the covenant of your, <laughs> your, your pain, you know? Man, I can see how effective you are as a, as a therapist because what you even in that hypothetical example this kind of it elicited a giggle in me mm -hmm. just, just because, because it was so it was so, so loving and it was, was so like supportive, supportive. didn't create any shame, shame mm -hmm. at all you know it, it allowed somebody it recognized like oh, i see why you're doing it and and beautifully done like it's it's a beautiful memorial mm. and and do you want to keep it and then it then it gives them the agency it doesn't rob them of any choice it's absolutely their choice this is a beautiful thing you've created do you want to keep it and they're like oh 
oh, now I, now yeah. I get to choose. You know, now I'm not shamed for having this and I get to choose a different way. And I think that's a just great example for anybody because we all act you know, we all act as therapists at different points to different people we love. You know, people will come to us and talk. And so when anybody comes to any of us with something that's going on, if we can understand the process that they're in and how that's adaptive and, and beautiful and even using that word like, wow, that's, that's beautiful what you've created here and do you want to keep it? And then I, I just think that's a really powerful way to support somebody. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah. I have this... Uh... <laughs> This idea in my head that someday, because I, I speak at substance abuse events all the time. Someday I'm going to have the guts to go up there and talk about how amazing liquor is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just like amazing. Yeah. The flavors they create, this like, it's just an amazing world. You know, that's hard to give up. <laughs> it's yeah. a beautiful thing. Liquor is a beautiful thing. It's an art. Mm-hmm. you know instead of this thing like liquor's bad no it's a uh, oh and that human beings figured out a way to get themselves drunk that's just like <laughs> remarkable <laughs> you know <laughs> but you, you have to give it up but let's not yeah. act like it's a bad thing let's not act like it's bad it's kind of a beautiful thing in some ways you know if there was a betting line to how effective that would be i would put all my money on super effective really that, yeah. here's the thing yeah. here's yeah, the yeah. thing like yeah. we when there's something that somebody's not telling us that we know to be true mm-hmm. you know like we know that that single malt is so good you know when you're having that oban 14 with the single rock at the end of the night you know you're having whatever you're your mojito with a cigar out in a, some kind of yeah. steamy environment like it's good that glass of wine you know these different things like we know that but if someone's not acknowledging that thing that we know we tend to just kind of disregard like a lot of what they say so and i think that's a big issue that happened with the war on drugs movement right like it was all drugs are bad drugs are in all of this propaganda and bullshit and as soon as you pierce the veil and you're like actually you know psilocybin's kind of awesome mm-hmm. you know as soon as you do that then everything you know they're completely discredited mm-hmm. you know they have no they have no ground to stand on and so when you when you overdo it or deny some truth that we know to be existent you create you just lose all authority that's right maybe not all but you lose yeah. a significant amount of the authority so i think that approach i mean i think that approach could revolutionize you know substance abuse treatment you know really talking about fuck this feels good even i haven't done it but like i imagine even someone talking about heroin that way like whoa like that's a that's an amazing feeling that it provides you know i get it i get it but nonetheless here are the consequences of course as we all know but even that thing it just engenders this trust like oh yeah they get it right that this is something that really feels good and it's a an escape and they get the reasons why i'm doing it i can only imagine that that would be highly effective yeah maybe i'll get the guts to do it (laughs) <laughs> well but, i'll be cheering you on from afar not that my cheers matter at all but i'll but it's be like, it's uh, like, yeah, it's like what mate says that you know there, there uh, there's one there's one substance for despair and that's heroin mm-hmm. so we, we take substances for depression we take substances for anxiety we take substances for schizophrenia if you want to yeah. treat despair that's the one wow you know yeah um it just comes with pretty heavy side effects it does one. yeah yeah. yeah yeah but 
But yeah, again, that goes to his incredibly important reframe, which is instead of this shame and this judgment and this you're broken and you're fucked up and you're an addict and all of these different things, you're a criminal and all of these different ways that we just put labels on people and drive them into the shadows saying, look, you're just attempting to solve a problem. Right. Here are the tools you're using to solve the problem. Here's the cost of using these tools. Right. And let me give you some different tools. Right. You know, that's such a much better way to do it. It is. And and, and then it, and then I, I, I don't know if I'm going too off subject, but then it gets into what the current trends do with that kind of thinking. The current trends are, you are what they call co-occurring. You have these two things going on for you. You have a mental illness and a substance abuse. And so you really now have to go to the center because you really do need to go put away. Cause we got to work on these two issues now. And you got to go to this program in Malibu where we're going to work on these two issues. It's not one anymore. And so his, his argument that this is something going on psychologically and deep for the person can get manipulated quickly into these yeah. schemes about treatment that don't work, you know? Right. And it's just everywhere. It's everywhere in Florida, California, it's everywhere. These kind of this movement towards making lots of money off of this substance abuse stuff where the, the practices aren't very good, you know? No, you listed a stat that said that the majority of people that quit habitual drinking do it on their own without treatment. And the ones that do it on their own have much longer lasting effects than the, one that, the ones that have gone to a treatment center. Yeah. Right. So it's like <clears throat> the treatment center, it's not that it's not that the treatment center is a bad idea. And I'm sure there's certain circumstances where it's an important inter- yeah. intervention, I suppose, is what it actually is. Mm-hmm. But there's they're missing they're missing some key components because if you're actually if you're actually offering something like that, it should be the most effective way right you know that's like, right and if they're not they got to just rethink some things that like get around and say like all right let's start from start from scratch let's read your book and let's let's talk to gabor and then let's let's figure some things out and try to make this the most effective way to handle you know substance abuse issues yeah that's exactly right i'm not against these programs i'm against the sales pitch though yeah right because the sales pitch is if you don't do this you're in denial something screwed up about you that you're not doing this and yet i'm talking to something that might not work right that's like a bad sales pitch but yeah yeah it's interesting too now i mean with everything that's going on socially there's a lot of talk about being a sex addict and then people going to sex addict treatment but it seems like it's just they're checking the box for their in this dramaturgy in which they have a mob that's angry and then so in the dramaturgy they say yes i'm an addict and they say okay okay you know, you're, you're no longer to blame. You acknowledge you're an addict. Now go get the approved treatment. And I, I don't know the stats on, you know, sex addiction treatment centers, but I can't imagine they're very good. And I don't even know what sex addiction necessarily is. You probably know as a clinician what that definition is, but it's, it's interesting how this is not only with substances, this is with behaviors as well. And this kind of model, and then the places popping up to treat this, it's, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean we're taking we're taking this is we're taking what's uh, we're taking the problem of habits and making them in these pathologies instead of saying when is it problematic and when is it not. Right? right. Because on the because con- on the continuum of sex addict a lot of sexual behavior is habitual and and, and addictive and something you can't hold back from, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what sex is. So to start calling it, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it becomes yeah. this sort of thing. Now it can become problematic, but it's the same thing. 
And to call it addiction makes it sound like it's this disease instead of it's just this habit we all have has become problematic. Right. Right. I mean, I do agree with Mate that all addiction is related to um, our attachments and our need to feel this sense of connectedness, mm-hmm. you know, and that a sense of well-being in the world and connected and that and that and that the drugs we take get you to those places. They play on the same things that play in our brains when we're connected. I'm sure you know all that, but all the stuff that goes on our brain, when we feel connected, all the stuff that makes my dog go insane when I walk in the house, right? He's, right. he's on these drugs right now. Cause I'm home. Right. Um, that would, by the way, that would be the best drug ever. If you could take dog excitement when the owner comes home drug, man, that would be the best. I don't think there's anything out there that does that. That's just, that's the good stuff right there. <laughs> We'd all be running around with a sock in our mouth. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Can you imagine your wife comes home and you're like, honey, oh my God, I'm so excited to see you. It's been so long. She's like, I just went to the store. You're like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but that hour was excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> But it's all about that, you know, aren't you addicted to your wife? I'm addicted to my wife. Yeah. Is that a bad thing? It's called being connected, attached. You know, it's just part of what attachment is. Yeah. Well, the the impetus to pathologize something is an impetus to be exculpable. It's an impetus to just push away any guilt, any shame you feel for doing that. You're saying, I have a pathology. I'm a broken machine, and this is something that happened, and I need a treatment intervention to fix it. And I think there's so many ways that we go about doing that, but it's a way of just shrugging the responsibility and autonomy of of actually having agency saying, that's right i had no agency i had no agency you know i got this thing and that's and that's it and that's it's a game that we play with ourselves and it's a game we play societally um to really remove ourselves from any any judgment that's right and i think it's i think it's personal but i also think it's a it's a it's a profound and, and this is one of the reasons one of the things i really try to avoid in in in, in the company i own and in, in in my own treatment and in my book is that it's also a profound act of power there's a famous French philosopher named Michel Foucault who talked about this, which is basically what he called the clinical gaze, which is if I get to be the person that decides what's normal and abnormal, I have profound power, mm. right? If I get to say to you, you're sick, you're not, you're sick, you're not, that's, that's the same kind of power as a priest saying, you're sinful, you're not, you're sinful, you're not. And we live in this society where things have become so psychiatric that that power is being exerted on people just constantly yeah you know it's interesting because there's you know in some of the research i've done the dsm diagnostic statistics manual that all psychiatrists use that's decided in true council of nicaea fashion where there's 12 men sitting around a room and just kind of debating what they classify as a disease or not a disease Mm -hmm. you know and whether and what i was really focused on was an interesting game that was being played between grief and depression in uh-huh. which grief and depression had overlapping symptoms. There's eight symptoms in the DSM for grief and depression. Yeah. And so in DSM-3, we're now on five, DSM-3 was from like 1980, there was a one-year grief exemption. So if something you know ostensibly bad happened yeah. in your life and you were experiencing these symptoms, well, then you weren't clinically depressed, you were just grieving, but only up to a year. Day 366, you're clinically depressed, You know, take some Prozac. Yeah. And then in DSM-4, it went down to two months. And they're like, a year is far too long to grieve. Two months. On yeah. day 62, you know, take some pills. And then now in DSM-5, it's down to two weeks. 
So if you're if you're spouse dies you got two weeks to grieve and then if you're still exhibiting those symptoms you know lack of energy lack of motivation you know depressed mood you know this whole host of symptoms well then you're clinically depressed but it's just 12 dudes sitting around deciding that. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's not like they're looking at other markers they're like well yeah two weeks <laughs> it's like it's like playing it's like in high school playing a game that your friend invented and then he keeps changing the rules. He's like, no, no, it's this rule now. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> no, I mean, you know, like, I think it's 1974, a bunch of psychiatrists sitting around a room in Washington, D.C. There's gay rights activists outside the door um, f- fighting the diagnosis of homosexuality as being a pathology. And they say, who here thinks homosexuality is a pathology now? And the majority of them don't raise their hands and then they go, okay, homosexuality is no longer a pathology. And on that day, <laughs> it stopped being a pathology in the DSM. And the yeah. day before it was a pathology. <laughs> it's, it's insane. It's so important for people to understand because when these, when these concepts are obscured and then they just get reinforced, reinforced, reinforced and told so many times, then people just don't even question anything. They're like, oh yeah, it's pathology. Well, all right, it was some dudes. I don't think they're malicious at all. I think they're just doing their best. They're trying to figure stuff out, you know? But they're just trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. You know, this is this is what's happening. It doesn't mean that we have to absolutely accept it and also put ourselves in this machine-like cookie-cutter thing. Man, it may take you three years to grieve the death of your spouse or your child or your, or your family. Or, and there's all these micro grief experiences we have, you know, when we, when we lose some aspect of our identity. And this is the part that I'm getting really curious about is like, there's these accepted grief constructs. Oh, someone, someone died. You got a divorce. You lost this job in a catastrophic way, whatever. Those are acceptable. And you can tell that story in your own dramaturgy and people are like, oh, wow. Yeah, I totally understand what you're going through. But when you have an idea about your identity, and we're deeply identified with that identity construct, like the, the stories we tell about ourselves, a lot of times those stories have to change. You know, just reality is different than those stories. So part of our story about ourselves dies. Yeah. And then that's when something dies and you can no longer change it, the response is grief. You have your grieving period for the story about yourself. Yes. And so, so that's happening all the time too. But it's hard to explain that to somebody like, well, I really thought I was going to be a famous singer. And now I realize, you know, after releasing that first song and nobody really liked it, I, I'm just not going to be a singer. Well, that's an opportunity that I think we all take to grieve. That's a death of the character you thought you were going to be. Right, 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 exactly. And, 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 and as a matter of fact, to get back to the, this idea of perturbed grief, um, typically why a person stays in that state is they're not grieving the loss of that person. They're grieving the fracture in their identity. Who am I now without this husband? (laughs) Who am I going to be? And so it's called this psychological thing of grief. But what they're really going through is how do I rebuild myself? I'm going through these struggles. It's not the grief of losing that person. It's the grief of what you're talking about. And then not being able to find a new story. Right. right. That's kind of the typical reason why a person's in perturbed r- grief. It's not perturbed grief. It's perturbed identity confusion. Right. Wow. I mean, I don't know if that fits with what you're saying, but that's absolutely. Really absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good way to just say that, just highlight the importance 
of understanding how much we protect and how we think our identity is really life or death. And it's like, this is this, this is the building we built with all the stucco and the scaffold and everything else. And we got this thing in our mind and then a wrecking ball comes in and takes out some of this because you failed at something or you don't believe anything's possible. And then grief is that period where you're looking at your materials and you're like, shit, I got to rebuild. You know, I got to, I got to call the architect. I got to figure some stuff out. And if you don't have enough faith in yourself and you don't have a belief in your own agency, you might be like, I'm never going to be able to rebuild anything. My life's just going to be in rubble. Right. You know, so we suffer these identity challenges and then it's just like, well, fuck it. I'm not even going to try to rebuild because something else is going to come smash this building again. And then, you know, might as well just stay here in the rubble. But you see, you just described a whole meaning to this event. Uh, perturbed gr- grief reaction has no meaning. It, it just doesn't, it, it's a label. And it's a label that the person who's being labeled with doesn't mean anything to them. So it's a sort of, it's sort of the sickness I have. It's not a process. It's right. not an event that we can have some compassion for, right? That, oh, that's what's going on for the person. There's a story behind this. You know, there's an event. You know, it's not what's wrong. It's what's happening, you know, and that kind of, that kind of thing takes some work and, 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 and diagnoses can destroy that. I, I actually go, when I give talks, I actually bring out the DSM and I say, this book should be put next to this book. And I hold out the Peterson guide for birds. <laughs> it's like, these are just the same thing. Right. And we really want to be applying this to our minds because it's the same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was diagnosed with um, really severe learning disability when I was a kid. And, um, and I was going to go on the short bus. I was going to go to this different school and be removed from my friends. And my parents resisted it. And thank God they did because I would have developed this whole identity as a disabled person, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but things were tough. It was tough. You know, I, I didn't know how to kind of behave and get through my classes because I couldn't, because you know, I couldn't pay attention, that kind of stuff, hyperactive stuff. Um, but now I'm convinced there's all these other disorders that people aren't looking at. Uh, lack of curiosity disorder, lack of imagination disorder, lack of innovation disorder. These are serious fucking disorders. Mine, I couldn't, I couldn't do some math and write. I can live with that one. I, I don't know how I'd live with the other ones. Right. And, and now I know my problem was I didn't do well in a factory school. Right. I didn't do well with that kind of teaching. There's no <clears throat> disorder there. You know, people with these t- tension issues, they become entrepreneurs. That's what they do. They be, you know, they, they have pretty damn good lives, mm. but it was labeled in that kind of way. Like I was broken, tainted, you know, it's almost like everything is, it's almost in this position where everything is a disorder or nothing is a disorder. And each human being is just going through their process, right? Like you can talk about every little micro thing as a disorder, or you can talk about nothing as a disorder and just a way that a human is adapting to their environment and responding in ways that, in ways that make sense and based upon their own you know, intrinsic nature and also based upon the environment that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw a commercial the other day for medicine for the bumps on the back of your arm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why you have to get rid of the bumps in the back of your arm. I just don't. (laughs) And they had a name for this disorder of bumps on the back of your arm. It's like, what? Wow. It's like, but that, but that is the world we live in. This world that's just pathologizing everything to sell a good, right? 
and that's the and that's the motivation you know i mean and i think again people are people will blind themselves and they'll think well you know bumps on the back of your arm it's a real problem it creates um you know self-esteem issues and these can have downstream effects and this is important that we release this bumps on the arm medicine (laughs) and i think they convince themselves of that but really like they're not aware of their subconscious motivation i want to make some money you know like that's really what's going on i don't think people are intentionally malicious hardly ever right i think they're just they're they're just stuck in some kind of justification where they're not aware of what their real motivation is right right i agree with you but the result is profound disabling of our autonomy this feeling like we're constantly not enough we're not doing enough you know and the book's trying to say you know relax on that a little bit you know (laughs) There's reasons that you're staying the same and they're self-loving. They're not bad reasons. They may make your life a little more fucked up than if you tried, but they're also understandable, mm-hmm. you know, um, because that, that world does worry me. This kind of problem saturated world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and, and like you said, I think there's, you know, a lot of things that happen when you label someone a certain thing, you know, it becomes co-opted into their identity construct and then they're going to have to reckon with that. And sometimes with positive effects or negative effects, you know, with someone's labeled, you know, gifted and talented, that was the program that was going on when I was in school and you're in the gifted and talented program. And maybe that makes you more gifted and talented, but it also sets up an expectation that you're always going to be gifted and talented. And so you have this new judgment criteria based on this expectation of your perceived performance. And so there's all of these things at play based on this label. That's, you know, just something to be aware of, you know, as soon as you start putting sticking a label on somebody they have to they have to reconcile that yeah yeah did do, do you know about the um this kind of kipling williams research on ostracism and pain Mm-mm. so he's a social psychologist and he has um people play this game called cyberball and it all it is is these two people it's a little image of these two people throwing a ball and then you join the game and then you throw the ball to them and they throw the ball back and forth. They throw the ball to you. And then slowly they stop throwing the ball back to you. And the subject is in an fMRI machine. And the part of their brain that responds to pain completely lights up while they're doing this stupid game. It's just a stupid little game. And they're in a complete mode of pain, even though they're not being touched. Now, Williams now tells people, the two people on that game you're playing with, they're, they're no, there's nobody there. They're not real people. It's just a computer program the same part of the brain lights up. Wow. That's how powerfully oriented we are to the fear of ostracism of being kicked out, right? You're going to be left behind by the tribe. You know, you better watch it. It's the pain warning you, right? And so this idea of ever being on the outside is this powerful thing that's just controlling our lives all the time. You know, it's just in our brains. Do you trace that back to any evolutionary biology biology roots in which ostracization from the tribe meant probably certain death in the struggles against nature and and all of these things do you think that's where this developed this pain to just kind of keep us Mm -hmm. in the tribe yeah yeah and so and yes i do yeah or keep us out of the tribe like we're leaving you behind and oh shit i better behave because i better be part of this group or i'm i'm in big trouble i gotta figure out how to conform because they're gonna leave me behind um yeah and so what what kind of people were typically left behind? Typically, people that were sick or disabled. Mm-hmm. So then, National Alliance for Mentally Ill goes around saying, "Don't stigmatize people; they have a brain disease." 
That is the most absurd non-stigma campaign you can have. <laughs> right. Right. You know, how about not stigmatize people because people that have that are different often can provide really interesting insights into the world and let's make a place for them because there's all kinds of ways and the world will get better if they're integrated. You know. It's almost like the the script has flipped to a position where now it's not about whether you have something that's not your fault. It's whether if you're doing something that is your fault, that's what creates the ostrich, like getting pushed out of the tribe, right? So like, if it's not your fault, we'll take care of you, you know, because we have the resources now. Back in those cold, hard days, back in the cold, hard days, it look, it didn't matter whether it was your fault or not. If you couldn't pull your weight, we couldn't carry you. There's not enough food to go around. There's only a certain amount of buffalo kills we're going to get and a way that we're going to actually be able to, you know, move the camp, et cetera. If you can't actually do stuff, we can't feed you. But it's different now. Now we have the resources. So it's really now about these kind of judgments of character, judgments of someone's ethos. You know, So as long as someone says, oh, it's not my fault, we're like, oh, cool, we'll take care of you. But if it's like, wow, you're really in fucking this up and it is your fault, we're not going to take care of you at all. That's, I think that's a very good point. I also think, though, if we get back to the idea of dramaturgy, you know, um, I'm, I'm at a restaurant. Um, the dramaturgy is the waiter comes to the table and we have a nice meal. And all of a sudden, this person comes in, and he's talking to himself really loudly. He doesn't fit in the play. I don't want him in here. This is a different story. I was here for dinner. Now I'm doing a play with a schizophrenic. I mean, I'm just saying, like, the yeah. ostracism comes in then, right? It's like right. you're disturbing the story we're trying to live right now. Right. You know? And we have these strict stories that do not allow difference in. Hmm. You know, that's, uh, it's interesting. I think one of the benefits of, I've been on the plant medicine journey, you probably followed my story for over 20 years. And one of the beautiful things about sitting in an ayahuasca circle is lots of random crazy things happen. You know, like there's people who will exhibit any variety of different strange behaviors in there, but always the shamans and the medicine people who are, you know, facilitating, will always say, no matter what happens with anybody else, this is part of your experience and like know that there's value in this experience for you this isn't happening this isn't going wrong for you you know like so take whatever's happening so for example the first time i actually drank ayahuasca there was a woman next to me who got stuck in a mental loop and she just kept saying over and over i can't tell if i actually shit my pants or i imagine i shit my pants <laughs> she said it for 45 minutes straight Mm-hmm. And she was just stuck there in this loop. And the <laughs> and I was like, I would have to catch myself getting like frustrated, like, stop saying that. Right. And then finally, like, have this kind of peace and acceptance for her experience. And then how I was interacting with her experience, the judgment that I had about her experience, the way that I felt entitled to a this noble silence or whatever this thing that I had. And so it became these deep lessons for me. And yeah. I think we, we can we can take the lessons from ceremony, like one of the reasons it's valuable is we take these and then we apply these to ordinary life. So if that person comes in the restaurant and they're acting like this, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn. I didn't know I was showing up at the restaurant to learn this lesson, but here I am. And this is my opportunity to learn and like learn non-judgment, learn acceptance, learn, you know, to be able to, to continue my experience without it being interrupted. So it's just a way to like reframe everything. I think that's really great. I, I think that, yeah, I think that that really captures what happens in these experiences and w- why it makes life so good 
after. I hadn't really figured out other than waking up, you know? Right. Um, you're waking up to a world where you, you begin to question the dramaturgies around you. You're more accepting of this, what's happening um, in, in that kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that really is part of what attracts me to plant medicine. You know, what makes me feel like I'm, uh, when I come back to the world, what I've gained from it. You know? Yeah. And, and it really is about how can we get in this place where we can live with uncertainty where uncertainty is a good thing, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and how can we be in these places where uncertainty is a thing that we want on some level, you know? Um, and, and that seems to be one of the things that also does. You know? Well, think, the way I like to think about that is think about a video game. Imagine if you knew exactly where every monster was going to come from, exactly the moves they were going to make. Everything was known, you know, it would be a, just a really shitty movie. Right. But the reason we like video games is the uncertainty. Right. You know, like we like that. So why would we want our life to be any different? You know, why would we want to have a life where everything was certain and played out? We would just be passive participants in a movie, you know, not actually the character of our own heroic novel, our own video game. Yep. Played out in real life with the greatest controller you could possibly imagine, a human being, you know? No, so, I mean, yeah, that, that's, also, that's also really what, you know, really good psychotherapy, that's what it is. It's improv. You're just doing improv. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're doing improv not for an audience. You're doing improv to help another person um, loosen up, you know, have a, mm -hmm. have a different view of the world. But you don't know where that session's going. It's not a video game, right? We don't know what we're going to create here. And, and that's the kind of psychological good we all need. It's just every interaction. We don't know where this is headed. You know, we're going to, and, and what does that do that makes us listen to each other? I don't know where this is headed, but I better listen hard to what the person's saying. Cause no one else is going to help me with this. Mm -hmm. Right. We, you and I didn't know where this was going to head. Nope. Right. And what made it enjoyable for me at least was feeling some level of connection to you because we were both trying to understand each other because we had nothing else available, but trying to understand each other. It wasn't, we weren't in the middle of a video game, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, Alan Watts, you know, gives a great, gives a great talk about that. You know, how this is what we're living right now is exactly how we would design it. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is it with yeah. immense challenges and all, and the forgetting of where we came from, the forgetting of, you know, the unborn and undying nature of who we are. And of course, that's uh, not something that's provable, whatever. That's a deep belief that I hold. And I think he held as well. But we would want to be in this situation where the stakes were really high, where there was pain and pleasure. Like we're living it. We're living the absolute best game possible. Like where we want, this is what we would want. And even everything that's going on in the world, you know, it, if you're watching a movie, look at any X-Men or Avengers or whatever, there's always an immense challenge in the world. And, and it's even historical, William Wallace from Braveheart, 300, whatever, there's an immense existential challenge and that's what calls the heroes forward. Hmm. So what are we going to do? We're going to lament everything that's going on and like, oh man, look at all this. Stuff. No, be like, all right, cool. Like, this is the time. This is the time. Let's rally, you know, let's rally our own fellowship. Let's recall our own Avengers and let's see what we can do. And if we, if we succeed, fucking awesome. If we don't, we go out on our shield. You That's know, really like, great. That's really great. Because it means we get the chance to be as human as possible. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just try to, you know, try to enjoy this along the way. You know, enjoy the 
and appreciate, and I think that's a beautiful thing that you do in the book, is appreciate your desire for sameness. You know, appreciate the desire for the small comfort of that bite of food or the, you know, the the small thing that you're trying to do, the alcohol that you're drinking. Like, appreciate all that. And then take your agency, take your responsibility with radical self-acceptance. Be like, all right, what do I want to choose now? Right, right, right. I mean, sameness is... Sameness comes from self-love and love is a broken thing that never does a perfectly good job. <laughs> right. So sameness is like your parents love, you know, they, they overstep sometimes they understep. Sometimes they're constantly failing in how they're expressing it, but you can still love your parents. You can still say they're doing the best they can, you know, mm. and that sameness is a party that's like, Hey, you know, put on your seatbelt. <laughs> This is scary, you know. <laughs> right? You know, take it easy, you know, don't don't risk too much. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's what would life be like without that at all? You know, It'd just be miserable, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it would be why I mean you'd be constantly putting yourself in the fray and you'd be constantly worn down, you know, if there wasn't that opposing force just being like, just chill for a minute. You know, you don't need any more gains this week, like just relax. Just take a, take a breather here. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's important. Yeah. There's a great line in, in this motivational interviewing, this, this model for working with people with addiction, which is don't call it resistant. You know, it call it the client telling you to slow down. Right. They're not, <laughs> right. They're not like resistant. Yeah. They're saying, Hey man, you know, okay, I get it. Let's just, let's take it a little easy here. Yeah. You know, I am changing. I am listening. I am going along, but let's just do this in the right pace. You know? Yeah, pacing. Pacing is uh pacing is crucial and it's real easy to cause a lot of damage when you go faster than the pacing that is is required and that could be from working out. Let's say you haven't worked out in a in a year and you just go to a CrossFit class. All right, you know, you're probably going to hurt yourself. You know, and if like going to the extreme isn't isn't the way. It's just like, all right, let's just let's ease into this. Let's get acclimated to it. And that's just slowly through micro progression, add a little bit more weight, a little bit more intensity and, and kind of ramp up. Mm -hmm. But that's, uh, that's something that takes, you know, patience and like a clear vision of where you're going, um, to kind of do. And it's easy to, it's easy to mess that up. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, messed that up when I was experimenting and exploring polyamory, right? It was like, okay, we're monogamous. And then it's like, all right. Now we're doing it, polyamory. We're going for it, and then both me and my partner Whitney, we both just freaked out. You know, we're like, ah, you know, and then we had to like recover from all the freakouts and everything. Where it have been like, should have just taken our time and talked about it more, and you know. But um, you know, there is there is some value that comes from just diving in head first into the cold water, but it creates a lot of collateral, a lot of collateral damage that you got to clean up if you do it that way. Yeah, it's messy. It's messy. I mean, I, I just, I, you know, in my company, we think a lot about pacing because we're talking about people who have had such profound experiences of disappointment because of how they've been treated for their psychiatric issue and what's happened because of it. So how do you kind of help them recover in this pacing kind of way? Um, and the fact is there's never the perfect pace. There's no such thing. You're just trying mm -hmm. to get an approximate. You know, whenever you're dealing with pacing, you're dealing with frustration because it's either too slow or too fast. It's never right on the mark, the exact the exact kind of speed, right? Yeah. And so it's slowing up, slowing down, going fast, slowing down. It's all of that kind of adjustment, you know? So you and your partner were, just, were doing an adjustment. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we're going too fast. Yeah. You know? Do we're doing our damn best. Right. That's for sure. You know, right. I mean, it, yeah. Sometimes I think like life's like, you know, life's like, like getting a massage, you know, like if you don't communicate to the person giving you the massage when things are too painful, there's no adjustment. When you don't yeah. communicate when they're not painful enough, there's no adjustment. There has to be yeah. this relationship to the change where it's all about adjustments. I mean, it's all about these tiny little adjustments about how much is too much, how much is too little, you know? In psychotherapy, you're thinking about that all the time. What's the, what's the question that is so provocative it'll throw this person into pain? What's the question that's so boring where nothing will happen? And what's the middle question that'll get them to think, right? And that's the mm -hmm. same sort of thing. How do you find those places? It's very hard, you know, in life. And made harder when our ego is attached to a certain outcome. You know, I imagine as a therapist, if a therapist is attached to being the one and, and has their identity as the one who asks the questions that mm -hmm. caused the, the patient to just break down in tears, you know, and, and you can get attached to this. And then, so you can become not really listening anymore. And this happens in relationships. This happens in all kinds of different situations where people have this idea about their identity and they don't want to be questioned. And on, especially if you have, this is like your thing, you know, this is something right. that you take great pride in. I think of sexuality as a great example, mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of people for no good reason, you know, have this deep attachment to their identity of being perfect in bed. Mm -hmm. Right. So if they receive any kind of like, Hey, a little softer, or, Hey, you know, what about, what about doing this? What about like a little more for They're like, what, what do you mean? Right. Like, I'm, I'm perfect. I've, right. I've, I've watched so much porn. I know I'm, I'm killing it. <laughs> you know, like, but that's going to prevent them from really like listening and they're like, Oh, okay. You know, you're different. I'm different. I'll adapt. I'll learn. And so it's instead of, you know, one of the things that I think is important, instead of identifying with the one who knows, who knows everything identifies the one who's always learning, you know, the master who's always learning rather than the master who knows everything, which really, if you think, you know, everything, you don't know shit. Because we're always just learning. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, 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 I struggle sometimes over this concept of ego, but I think, you know, there are there is a kind of ego that is inflexible, and there's a kind of ego that is curious, and the kind of ego that's curious is what we want to head towards. There's still an yeah. I there, which was the ego means, right? Right. And it's strong, and it has it has fortitude to it, but what it is is it's looking to understand the other. And I, I don't know if I want to be egoless because that then that goes it's, away. It's not even possible. No, right. Their, your ego becomes the one who's egoless. You right. Know, it's like it's a, just a game. It's your own little game you're playing. I want to be in the state of curiosity, imagination, you know, and especially curiosity. Imagination because I, I need my imagination to um, understand what's happening to the other person. I have to be able to hold their brain in mind and understand it. And I want to be curious about them. Um, and and that gets blocked when it's like I just need this this and this or my my feelings are going to get hurt if that happens and all of that that's that's an uncurious state you know yeah yeah, yeah absolutely mm -hmm. well as we wrap this up here are there any of the we haven't talked too much about the actual ten reasons is there anything from from your ten reasons that you want to highlight any reason that particularly stands out or that might be surprising uh, to people the ten reasons why we don't change. They're, they're kind of the least interesting part of the book to me, but uh, I guess, you know, this idea that, you know, so much of our expectation, so much of our hope has to do with worry about other people hoping for us. 
letting them down. And we can get tied up into that so much that it holds us back because we have this experience of wanting their aspirations, you know, wanting their excitement about us. And that's such a fundamental risk. So that's one of the reasons I find that to be a really powerful one mm-hmm. that we have to give up to move on, you know? Um, but I think that's the main one that the main lesson I want people to learn from the book is that um, if you can recognize that it's really kind of a big mess and not think that there's some one big answer, you're probably in a better place to change, you know, and that every book out there that gives advice is great, but it's only good if you're in the place where you're ready to do the change and to be ready to do the change is to be in that contemplative place where you're kind of looking at yourself and saying, do I really want to give this up? You know? Do you have a do you have a journaling style that you like to use when you're contemplating something when you're trying to make a decision do you just list pros on one side of the sheet cons on the other is there any other way that you kind of go through this in a in a journaling method I don't I think that's a great idea mm-hmm. I don't because I have this learning disability <laughs> I don't really write things down <laughs> I might draw something out you know uh-huh. I might draw something out um but uh I think mostly I take a walk and contemplate these things and think about them, you know, yeah. a little bit, you know, what's yeah. the good in this? Often I don't, I stick with it because it's like, yeah, I like a lot of the good in this behavior. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not going to diet right now. Cause I'm kind of liking this, you know, um, yeah. but that's that sort of thing. Do you, um, do you ever feel like you can hear the whisper of what the ancient Greeks would call the daemon, what might be your potential or your soul, the sense of knowing that kind of can cut through some of the intellectual contemplation. It's it's difficult because I think it's when I that voice can also be co-opted by, you know, different other aspects of the psyche. But have you have you experienced that feeling where it's just like you don't really have a good reason. You just kind of know something. Yeah. Yeah. So that that might be more tied to the gut brain than the brain brain. Right and to physical experience and every decision i make is always ends up being based on that even when you know all the answers the final decision is an act of faith the faith is faith is in our gut (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know and so it's that kind of act of i'm gonna have faith in this feeling right now you know is that is that answer your question it does yeah it does yeah because it's it can be really kind of mysterious, but if you just think about it as, and you talk about all of these different somatic cues mm-hmm. that, you know, if we're not aware of them, they might be happening under the surface, but are just pushing us towards a decision. And we may think that we're making this decision just with our pure intellect. Right. And, but really there's probably a lot of other forces at play that are actually driving us towards something. And maybe that's translating it into our mind as this, you know, still small voice inside as uh, as Ram Dass would say, or mm-hmm. you know, this kind of whisper that comes through, and maybe it is something a little bit more metaphysical than that as well, and maybe some combination of both. Maybe your gut and your soul are in communion, and and who knows? But it is it is interesting where there's this the way to intellectually do it, and sometimes that's necessary, but then there'll also just be this knowing where you're just like, all right, you know, yeah, I know yeah. what to do. Yeah, it, 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 do I have a couple seconds? I'll tell you. You do. Okay, so. Yeah. So this guy, Kurt Lewin, I mentioned before, he believed that we live in these fields, that there's all these things holding us back from change. There's all these things moving forward towards change. And we're the little place in between those two things, wherever we are, that's where we are towards our change. And certain things can happen in our environment 
because we're not in control of this whole field. There's all kinds of things going on that push us forward. Um, and so I was in New York and I was getting on the elevator to give feedback to one of my supervisees. And I hate giving feedback. I hate giving them feedback and I'm no good at it. And I knew I had to do it and I want to change this. I want to be able to do it well, but I was talking myself out of it. And I got on the elevator and uh, someone spilled coffee. And this person from the back of the elevator brought up some sugar and they poured it on it to make it congeal. And this other person came and put a napkin on it. And then we all sort of sat there staring at that coffee and, um, you know, kind of pleased that we took care of this person spilled coffee. And a person gets off the elevator and they yell back, that was the best elevator ride ever. And everybody just starts cracking up. And then we get to the third floor and this guy, this like sort of serious guy in a suit gets off and he says, same time next year, we all meet here for the elevator. <laughs> I get off on the eighth floor and I am completely ready to give feedback. Yeah. So something in me, because just because I was around kind humans and because I had this experience of kind of connectedness allowed that part of me to trust my gut, to trust that feeling, you know? And so we never know what the thing is that's going to make it so that we end up kind of in a place of greater trust in ourselves. It's surprising. It's sort of shocking. And that's why one day you say, I'm going to diet and you can't. And the next day you wake up and all of a sudden you're dieting, right? There's things in our world that just sort of shift and all of a sudden we're ready to do it. That's a great story. And, and again, and you've brought it up so many times, the importance of connection, the importance of surrounding yourself. You know, those, those two people who made those comments and the ones that were helpful, like, when they're part of your tribe and they're part of your they're part of your clique, you know, they're part of your your chosen family, your ohana, you know, you're gonna be able to have that much more faith in yourself and in in all of these situations just based on this kind of community that you've developed. And uh and that just highlights the importance of surrounding yourself with people that inspire that in you, not only by what they're telling you, but by how they act you know, which is how we really learn. It's like when we see somebody doing something, you know, like that's what's going to cause us to want to be like that and do the same. It gives us permission to do it. You know, courage is contagious. Yeah. And that points at the insanity of our behavioral health system, which takes all of those resources away from people to cure them. We're going to put you in a hospital. We're going to remove you from your friends. We're going to now call you something that makes you an outsider. Everything that makes us feel like we belong is ripped from these people in order to treat them. It's insane. That's an insane system. Yeah. It, it, and, 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 and I'm pretty sure that a lot of their behaviors are the result of that, not some psychiatric thing in their brain. You're, mm -hmm. you're removing them from the, from the very medicine they need to kind of live, to live their lives, you know, same with substance abuse, you know? Yeah. Well said. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Where's uh, Where's home for you, by the way? Uh, I'm in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. I grew up in nice. California, but this is, yeah. That's where you're hanging out. Well, this was great. The book is uh, How We Change and 10 Reasons Why We Don't. Um, Audible, as well as, uh, as well as Amazon and bookstores. Bookstores still are operating right now. I don't even know. But um, awesome, man. This was a, this was a real pleasure. It was a really fun play date. Yeah, <laughs> indeed it was. Next time, bangles. Next yeah. time, bangles. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> cool. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Dr. Ross Ellenhorn. 
please check out his book, How We Change. It's going to be available on Amazon and everywhere that books are sold. And I hope this gives you the enthusiasm and the techniques and the wisdom and the motivation to make that change that you're looking to make in your life. It's possible. It may not be easy, but it's possible. So I hope this inspires you to do that. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.